out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Helen O'Hara, who, the violinist, composer and musical director and arranger, was a key member of Dexy's Midnight Runners from 82 to 86, also worked with Tanita Tickerham for quite a few years, has done various solo albums and has gone on to do much, much more. So this is the interview. And also, most importantly, she has a new book out, a memoir, and it's titled What's She Like? This has come out on Root Publishing. So this is the interview. You can find out much more um, a bit later. So yes, after several minutes of casual but interesting chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Helen, it's over to you. Well, I think it was initially it was classical music because um, I'm one of seven children and I'm number six. And so um, being at the, the younger end, um, I was experiencing what my brothers and sisters were playing physically in instruments, um, you know, because everybody played an instrument, whether it was the piano or clarinet or guitars or whatever. Um, so Chopin, actually, my sister's playing Chopin was was a huge um, love, just hearing them play. Mm. Um, but then my elder brother, Tony, who, who's about seven years older than me, he was buying all the records because he was earning money through paper rounds and things. So he was buying, you know, the Rolling Stones, the Pretty Things, the Kinks, the Who, or, you know, all the, all the kind of um, hit stuff going out there. And he was, you know, putting on the TV to watch Top of the Pops, Ready, Steady, Go. So I was absorbing all this and just absolutely loving it. You know, he had Beatles wallpaper and, you know, he, he was a huge influence actually in, in what I got to hear. Yeah. And although I loved classical music because I was playing with, with youth orchestras and, and learning um, classical violin and piano, um, it was always the pop music that, that got to my heart and my soul really. And, um, and so, you know, that I had a few years, you know, into, I suppose, early teens, I was thinking, actually, what I really want to do is play in a band. Mm. I was destined for music college, if you like. Um, but it was this conflict of, well, actually, you know what, I really do like playing by ear. I, I love this music more than classical music. Um and of yes. course, that's eventually what happened. <laughs> that's what happened, yeah. Because it's yeah. interesting, because I had an older brother who was seven years older, and he he introduced me to the world where his period was prog rock with a bit of heavy metal. So it was oh, like... okay, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, so it was Genesis. It was, you know, um, yeah, Sparkly James Harvest, you know, Wishbone Ash and the solo work yeah. of Rick Wakeman. And then the big albums like, then, wasn't it, rather than the singles? It was yeah. you know, the complete work sort of thing. And it was interesting because it was probably... Uh, the early to mid 70s but he had Sergeant Pepper and he also had Goodbye Yellow Brick Road which at that time there was no cultural context was there you know and mm. I just kind of started listening to them being really like oh this is amazing and especially Goodbye Yellow Brick Road with four sides and then this amazing song at the end called Harmony which I still think is gorgeous but at that stage I didn't now looking back you think god the Beatles had only just broken up but yet it felt like another completely different time you know we were just looking at T-Rex and you know a bit of glam rock with some weird novelty singles in the top 10 which was very exciting wasn't it so um yeah it was it was kind of interesting how quickly and I I did an interview with a journalist called Nick Kent who started in about 73 74 and he said the journalists that you know were there and they'd been there for a few years 
were still waiting for the Beatles to reform to, you know, to sort of say, right, they're back, right? We, you know, we know what we write about, you know, punk, not sure about the punk, you know, they were obviously going to become old people in their mid twenties, you know? So it's interesting how those musical chapters change so quickly. So, um, yeah. And, and also I think, you know, as you said earlier, is that, Back then, we were very much limited to what we heard, you know, through other people, whether it was in our family or friends, um, or perhaps things we were reading in the in the music press. But and like you say, when you bought an album, you know, it was a big thing. You had to work, you know, as a, a teenager to to earn the money. You know, I was I, I was doing, um, you know. Um, newspaper deliveries you know pay, you know paper rounds and working in little shops and things to get the money and you know you might hear the the hit but you like you say you know you you didn't know the rest of it and you just put your faith in the bands and a lot of money and got yes. this album and and you know now it's so it's great in in millions of ways because i you know i love streaming and spotify and things and you can just hear this 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 and dart around but the idea of listening to that complete album was you know something i i'm i'm glad i did you know because you you'd and because your collection was so limited you'd hear them again and again and again and really got deeper and deeper into it all. yes i know um, and there was and there was records that you bought that you didn't like but you thought i've spent 3.99 that's <laughs> taken me months to save up i'm going to literally play it because I feel too, you know, annoyed, you know, but there were albums yeah. that I grew to love. Like, I remember this book, my brother had, you know, great albums. It was Joni Mitchell, you know, you've got to get these mm. and Van Morrison two album, you know, those Moondance and um, Astral Weeks. And there was, you know, Court and Spark and Blue. And, and both of them were like, God, this is a bit tricky for a young, but a young ear. But eventually, you know, you did get to listen to it and yes. you did get to get the lyrics and think. Okay, yes. I really like it, but God, it took a bit of work and it wasn't instant candy floss, you know, it was like... No, I, I was like that with Bob Dylan, actually. Uh, and, um, you know, I bought it because I thought when well, he was being hailed, you know, as, you know, <laughs> Bob Dylan. And I, I hadn't heard anything by him. And I just thought, I think it was Bring It All Back Home, I think. Right. Was a picture yeah. I think it was that one. And a woman in the background, long, dark hair. And I, oh, I was like, yes. Is, yes. It, is it Bring It All Back Home, that album? Is that what it's called? I can't uh, yeah, I think they're, is there by, there was one with him on the street and someone's holding his arm. And there's some, something. Not that one. There's a living there's a living room picture, isn't there, where they're all sitting around in a room, I think. And yeah, um, bring oh, it back gosh. home. I know we're good at anyway, this. Anyway, we had white around it, and then just like almost yes. like a little photograph in the middle. And um it did take me a while, but I was glad that I persevered, you know. Whereas now you might click on Spotify and right next. And it's yes. that short attention span thing that, you know. I don't know. There's good, it's no, good it's about, true. It's, it's true. I mean, it was like, I think me, it was for Dylan, it was like, like a Rolling Stone, that was a safe bet. And But yeah. the rest of the album, a bit tricky, but I still grew to <laughs> like it. Yeah. And then it was Blood on the Tracks, which was a really safe bet. And in a way, that yeah, was good. Yeah, but then there was yeah. all the other ones that you tried to get into. And it was like, oh, no, no, I'm not much of a, I'm not a real Dylan fan. I'll just stick with the greatest hits. So, Well, his new problem. album. I'm loving his new album, Rough and Ruddy Ways. Oh, yes. Um, I mean, it's not that new now, but... When that came out, I think we might have been in lockdown or it was around that strange time. And I I put on a you know a pair of headphones and I listened to it and I listened to it and I just thought this is, you know, it's genius. This album is just so good. But you know, it's not it's definitely not something you can put on and do little jobs around the place, you know. You have to 
totally focus on you have to you work know. a bit like my love of david bowie which was you know which was again because people oh, when he passed yeah. away were like because they knew i was you know a big fan and all that they said oh that was yeah, must have been great and it's like actually it was quite hard work because a lot of his albums were quite hit and miss and they were quite experimental so it wasn't it wasn't just the greatest hits and ziggy it was no. like my god there was like the 80s yes. work there was his kind of drum and bass stuff there was some really odd things in there that you went yes bowie's got a new album oh i'm not sure about it i'm still catching up actually still catching up yeah what would you recommend um the later ones to listen to well i loved ours side one of ours was just lovely but i also have really fond memories of his last two reality and heathens because we we were sort of moving house and i remember we had that on when we were unpacking boxes and heathens yeah. was like this return to form so to speak okay. I mean I, they're probably quite safe but I love those and the band were amazing at that stage as well um and and ours is quite sweet again I've got great memories but his drum and bass stuff a bit tricky his 80s mm-hmm. stuff that production is a bit tricky um yeah. but you know it was great it was it was good fun you know and yeah. and you know and the I fact loved- that he was always experimenting and moving forward and and I suppose taking risks really you know doing what he wanted to do and he wasn't um, very similar to Kevin Rowland, really, you know, um, and just going with what he really want, you know, creatively wanted to do. And it's you just hope people like it. And yes, that's well, all you can do, really. Well, it? the great thing is, I remember him being interviewed and someone saying, "Oh, you're not going to get too many record sales," and he. He sort of says, no, something Sherlock, you know, it was around the time of low, you know, it was like this was a disastrous uh-huh. album and his Berlin period. I mean, everyone loves it now, but I think at the time it was like, oh, my God, what have you done? <laughs> That's often it, isn't it? Often things aren't, um, people aren't ready for what some people have re- released. It was like that with Don't Stand Me Down, you know. Yes, the tricky, the tricky album, isn't it? Well, that's what people said at the time, but then you know, 10 years on, and it was hailed as, you know... A masterpiece. It was appreciated, anyway, and and still is now, which is great. You know, so, I mean, that happens, and I suppose... There's, well, there's nothing you can do. You can, all you can do is write what you want to at the time. And, and yes. Well, there yeah. are certain artists, Bowie and Neil Young. I really like the way that they will do what they really feel their gut yeah. is telling them to do. And yeah. it's like, sorry, it, well, not sorry. They definitely don't apologize. It's like tough luck. You know, if you didn't like it, that's not my problem. I'm working on the next album now. So there you go. I think the thing about Bowie, and I suppose <laughs> being a bit fixated, I mean, his 70s, he did like one album a year, he produced several albums. He did huge tours. He even starred in films. He did Broadway with The Elephant Man. I mean, he didn't stay, he didn't stand still, did he? He just kept saying, right, this is my experimental. This is my kind of soul album. This is my electronic-y album. This is Ash to Ash. You know, it was like, I think he just, he, you know, I couldn't imagine what it must be like because, you know, not many artists have ever managed to do that, have they really? So, um, No, and I suppose if you have a certain amount of success, you, you also have a certain amount of freedom financially to be able to do that perhaps and also you will probably have the you know massive support from record company and PR and all the rest of it which sometimes that's harder when you're um lesser known I think or yes. you know, less money sloshing around you know <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yes, but nevertheless I'm... it's still you know I think that is the sign of you know true artists really is in people just doing what they really want to do and um, like I say, you just, you know, it's great if people like it, but you have to be true to yourself, I think. Yeah, but with all those artists and that idea, I think, I, I, bizarrely, I did an interview yesterday with 
the John Lennon's lawyer who had to get him out oh. of this kind of contract, Jay Burke, and um, you know, and he and sort of he got involved with a slightly mafia character called Morris Levy. This 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 notorious character, Morris Levy. He was kind oh, of wow. like, and you know, he had to work with John for two years to try and get him out of this kind of you know relationship. And you know, it's kind of it wasn't easy for any of those people, you know. And and also, God, I did an interview with a guy who did a book about the Rolling Stones when they did that Exile on Main Street and they had to yeah. sort of literally leave the country, go to south of France to record an album. They hadn't yeah. made a penny. <laughs> they hadn't no. paid a penny. And they were yeah. totally broke, but they had a huge tax bill. So, again, they yeah. were kind of gypsies on the road, just thinking we've got to make this album, but we can't go back to England. So it was, yeah. it's never easy for those characters when you look behind, you know, they've signed terrible contracts, they've got terrible management, and they're getting done over left, right and centre because they didn't quite understand the contract. So it's a little bit... Yeah, you know, it's and then you've got to get in a headspace to make a creative album. I think it is quite like, how did you do that? You know, it's a very familiar story, I think, <laughs> because most most musicians and artists are just aren't very good or interested in the the legal stuff, you know. And and you know, I don't actually, well, I you know, I know very few people who haven't at some point <laughs> come unstuck. Well, bizarrely, everyone I seem to talk to, you know, and and a lot of it is focused on the 80s are still sorting out their their publishing and ownership. And and they've still got some some music lawyer, the friend who's kind of quite good rates is trying to sort out the problems that they did. So only 40 years later, it still goes on. So, um, yeah, it's a bit bitter. I hope hope that more. um, I hope what is, I don't know whether it's happening, but I, I would hope that more music colleges, whether they be classic, classical or Brit school or BIM or whatever, um, will have visiting music, musicians who can just give a little bits of advice to, to um, the, you know, the, the new generation because it's, it, it's continuous. It's, it hasn't gotten any better, I don't think. And um you know, um, you know, it, it was the same when I, you know, most most musicians, it's the last thing you're thinking about. Yes. You know, you're just you're hopeless with money, generally speaking. And, and um, you're, you're always thinking about the artistic side. And then, unfortunately, there's a lot of people in the background who will take advantage of of that. And, yes. Um, um, well, I think I think I think that point when you're younger and sometimes the stars line up and the the band or the artist makes that amazing record that we all love, which is kind of only happens occasion, doesn't those 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 things line up? I think, but the the the, the headspace or the spirit of the person is kind of a naive enthusiasm with a certain amount of arrogance that happens. And then it's kind of slowly goes and you try and get that back. But it's quite tricky. I know I'm playing with my hands a lot here. But as you get older, it's a little bit harder to to keep that kind of sense when you've been burned here and a bit done over there and a bit, you know, ripped off there to try and get that back. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. So much of pop music is made when you're very, most people are very young rather than we still hear classics from people older. But generally it's it's kind of that youthful enthusiasm without worrying about what you just signed over (laughs) yeah I think there is that but I think you know it's it's the difference in I think every age has something to offer I think I suppose um I, I think the hunger in the beginning is is often there in the in the first couple of albums or so you know um just and like you say that that youth 
which is just something there is a magic there but but i but on the other hand i think you know that there, there are um great albums you know rough and ready ways i i would i would cite you know and dylan's you know how old is he 80 something you know? be, yeah well well bowie was 69 and he did and you know, black star so exactly. yeah no that was exactly but, so so i think it you know it's just different what you have to offer yes you know, it's, it's, it's going to be a little bit of a different lyric you're not going to be partying all night when you're in your 60s or 70s you certainly aren't no no you're in bed by 10 most of the time having sort of you know i don't know appointments at the hospital for various reasons which make it quite <laughs> difficult to put that in a song really isn't it so, so <laughs> <laughs> CT scans and MRI, MRI scans. <laughs> right, right, and that one, Lloyd Cole. Um, yeah, so look, then just before you hit the 80s, which is obviously the exciting period, you you it's a kind of interesting because you you kind of slip into the world of almost prog rock, quite heavy rock for a, for somebody who's had that classical background. It's quite an interesting mix, isn't it? I thought, you know, because I didn't yes. see that one come in. No. <laughs> well, nor did I but but um I, th I think I, I was so keen to join a band and it was so hard back then in the 70s to um because there was no social media or the internet and all the all these things where you can seek out all sorts of opportunities you know back then it really was your local paper or the melody maker um, or word of mouth, really, and and it was through just scouring the melody maker. Well, obviously nobody wanted a violinist there, but but in this Evening Post, Bristol Evening Post, I saw this advert for um, All Instruments Considered, and um, and of course because the band, when we did go to audition, myself and my friend who was a viola player, um, you know, to discover that the band was being led by Ken Pastanik from the Groundhogs, who we'd never heard at the time, but then having checked his records out and seen that he was, you know, proper professional musician. We weren't that bothered about what the music was, to be honest. Yeah. You know, it was, here's an opportunity to, to, to be in a band and learn and, and live, well, certainly for me, you know, to, to live the dream, you know, and, and it, and it was a really great start. I mean, it wasn't without <laughs> sort of complications and, and slightly weirdness for a 17 year old, still sort of quite naive, really. Um, but going on to the so that was sort of instrumental prog rock, I suppose. But yes. going on to the next band, I joined another band. When I left this band, I thought, well, how do I get into another band? Because the violin isn't wasn't wanted, you know, as a instrument. It's not like a guitar, and I certainly wasn't a folky. So I saw a band that wanted a pianist, and I thought, well, I can play the piano. <laughs> so you know, it's kind of way of it was. I've, I've always looked at life as sort of you know, to try and get outside the box and look at it, how, how you can make it work, you know, work for yourself, really. And um, my yes. piano playing was good enough to be accepted. And then, of course, they wanted violin later when we became a new wave band. And so, but that band, you see, that band then was the absolute grounding for what was to become later. Because without, you know, having worked with up this band called Uncle Poe, who became the new wave band, you know, was firstly was a soul band, then morphed to a, a sort of jazz fusion, I suppose, and then became new wave. With that, and we were playing, you know, three or four times a week, rehearsing every night, you know, playing lots of opportunities to play back then, so far more now for young bands. Um, RAF bases, US bases, yes. pubs, clubs, etc. And it was um, 
by playing so much with them that I learned the skills to um, transfer to, to Dex's. Because without that, without those skills of knowing how to improvise and just knowing how a band works and knowing how you play with a drummer and a rhythm section, I think maybe I wouldn't have been, you know, skilled enough to, to for Dexys to have wanted me to, to join. Yes, well, the, the the apprenticeship is kind of important, really, isn't it? To have that hugely, kind of... Hugely, hugely. And just knowing how a band works, you know, the, the, the thing of understanding a band, you know, of, of this... This very intense um, process of, of, you know, sitting closely together when you're touring and um, <laughs> in a van and and four o'clock in the morning unloading is probably quite exactly in, in or team teamwork and it's not. I mean, okay, I've played in some very cold cathedrals with classical music, but it's not the same as lugging speakers in and out and and an audience who are heckling or whatever, you know. So, yes, there you, you know, go. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. And so. just, uh, I mean, because I was just curious, because I can remember, you know, obviously we probably all watched Top of the Pops and listened to the Top 20 on a Sunday, but there was that single that came out, The Devil Went Down to Georgia. I know that's a terrible kind of possible question, but did that, did you go, oh, that's good? Because years later, we listened to the levelers and that kind of folk fusion rock crest crusty scene that we all loved in the late 80s and then into the 90s. But there hadn't been that much kind of, I suppose ELO had sort of given us a bit of kind of, kind of slightly lush kind of orchestral pop rock prog wasn't there but um yes that yeah. single was like oh my god this is a really sexy song Ish. I think it, the, for me the songs were more were more Slade you know Jimmy Lee um it was um hearing Rod Stewart you, the way he used the violin um Eddie Jobson in Roxy Music um I was fascinated by Jean-Luc Ponty but he was so virtuosic that I never aspired to that, but but I was fascinated the way he was playing electric violin and using effects in the Mar Vishnu. And also um, Don Sugarcane Harris, who I'd heard through a friend who'd played me a Zappa album. And that was a blues style of playing, which was basically playing the violin like a guitar like a lead guitar so thinking completely differently which is what I tried to do with Uncle Poe when I was given solos was to almost not think about what I was playing and just let the hands kind of yes. do stuff instinctively and there was there was another yeah. cult band from that time who I've done the interview with the fiddle player called the Fabulous Poodles I've um, heard of them but I, I I can't remember any of this stuff. I must have listened to some of this stuff. But I can't well, remember. Well, interesting now. enough, there was the great court, there was a court case because he did the fiddle playing for the Bluebells Young at Heart. Oh, the, um, what's his name, that guy? Yes. Um, and, Bobby, and Bobby somebody? Valentino. That's Bobby the Valentino, one. yeah. Well, we should be on yeah. pop quiz, shouldn't we? We're great. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, so I did an interview with him because of curious, curiosity with Fabulous Poodles. And then, oh, oh yeah, the Bluebells. And then this court case, because it was a bit like that was mine. And that's what made the song, you know, quite gave it a bit more and it didn't get any credit. So he won the case. But um, it was yeah. kind of interesting that, yeah, yeah, so there was that little bit of kind of, yeah, quite a, the the violin player in that the you know for the fabulous poodles was the very cocky he had a moustache and he looked really like a bit of a spear but was cool and groovy and all the way yeah and so, you yeah. noticed people who played the violin because there weren't men, there weren't many many of us you yes know? and and you know it I, so I suppose the thing is when I um, first played with Dexes 
it was that thing. It wasn't they. It wasn't obvious fiddle lines as well. They most of them had been written apart from solos, which I made up. But how they've been written, I always think, is, is you could substitute all those Emerald Express violin lines in Two Rye, Come and Eileen, any of those songs, and put a brass section there, and they will work as a brass section equally as well as a fiddle player. Because I think Jim and Kevin, who were writing them at the time, were thinking more like a brass section. They were thinking, I, this is my, my tape. And that is why I think the fiddle playing in Two Rye is, is quite unusual, really, because it's not, it's not string players writing the parts. It's people who are, who are thinking more brass in brass, brass way. Yes. And then having a string player put the solos in, who, and obviously I'm thinking as a string player um, and my instrument, that contrast um, really worked. I mean, that's yes. just an, an analysis I've had since I've written a book, actually. Um, because the, writing the book has made me really think about lots of things I hadn't thought that deeply about. Well, I'm not surprised because that early, early 80s, late 90s, this is where you had that transition. You went to to music college, didn't you, at that stage yes. in Birmingham? Yes, so, well, 78. So 78, so 79, Margaret Thatcher's kind of, you know, gets into, you know, power, number 10. And then we have the Falkland Wall and the the miners' crisis and, you know, rioting. Right. And then we had Greenham yes. Commons, so we all thought we were going to die of a nuclear war. So during that kind of period, you were a student, but you obviously studying, but with also a bit like, was it flash dance, you know, sort of welder by, welder by day and a dancer by night. So you were a student by day and just started to, you know, think, right, I'm going to keep with my the, the music ambition of being in a band. Were you thinking, no, I'm going to go to the classical front at the uh, route at this stage? Um, no, once I decided to go to music college, I stopped listening to any pop music because I knew if I listened to pop music, I was going to be tempted back to playing with bands again. And I sort of made a deal with myself was that these three years, and then I got a postgrad year after that, so I did four years, I was going to keep my head down, really work as hard as I could, and, and totally focus on classical music with. Um, the idea that I would probably join an orchestra. Um, it wasn't that I'd lost heart in in thinking I could join a band. It was just there weren't, you know, it was it was hard enough to get into those bands in Bristol. But I, you know, I, I knew enough to know from, from what little snippets I was hearing from my flatmates playing that, that the violin just wasn't wasn't really a thing, you know. And it wasn't like it is now for music students, where so many of them can go into session work sort of behind the scenes string playing on tv or, yes. or you know um, records and stuff um, but to be an actual part of you know a member of a group an instrumentalist you know violinist so I, I'd, I'd sort of it's what I wanted to do but I'd kind of thought well the reality is I've got to make a living and I like playing classical music you know it's challenging I love a lot of classical music so I want to travel and that's when I saw this advert for the Bilbao Symphony Orchestra. And I thought, well, that sounds great. Live in Spain, you know, new challenges, um, probably play a lot of Spanish music, you know, yes. enjoy the sunshine. Applied for the audition, did the audition, got the job. And I and I accepted, you know, I signed, I signed the contract. But it was at this time, because the, I, w I met up with Dexys, and then when it was put on the line, here's, you can either join Dexys or, you know, go to music college, 
um, except that Dex's didn't have a hit at the time. You know, <laughs> this is before Touré was released, so there was no money. I, you know, I wasn't earning any money, and there were, the, the future wasn't looking great actually for Dex's at that time. But it was my flatmate Wendy who said, because I said, to her, "What do I do? I mean, I, I want to join Dex's, but that's kind of mad in a way because." You know, I've got this secure offer with the Bilbao Orchestra, which does look great as well. <laughs> what yes. do I do? Anyway, she said, listen to your heart, which is what I, I should have known because it's how I've lived my life. I've always gone with my gut instincts with things. So I said, well, that's easy then. Okay. Um, I'm going to do it. Join Dexes. Yeah. So I wrote to the Bilbao. It was all a bit bit cold. But anyway, I got away with that. And, um, and then a few weeks later, you know, Dexes started to climb the charts with Eileen. So Yes. But but they had because um, I got the the first album, Searching for the Young Soul Rebels. So there was this kind of wow, they're amazing band, you know, nineteen eighty. Yeah. So what was it like to step into a band that had already got one album under their belt? You know, and it was kind of a bit of a classic for, for classic for us 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 indie kids. You know, there would been certain albums around that time, like the beat, I just can't stop it, and um, I can't think of any others. But <laughs> there was a lot of quite good music at that stage, and it was like, oh, Dexys, everyone bought that one, didn't they? Because um, it was just a great album. So you'd already they'd already got a bit of established, but then you came in with a slightly jig jig the sound about, and and suddenly. Yeah. You know, became yeah, a but sort I didn't know machine. that, you see, David. I didn't know Dexys because I, I'd stopped listening. From 1978, I'd stopped listening to pop music. So it was only when I, I, I rang up my brother, Mark, my younger brother, and I said, I've just been doing, you know, recording some demos with a band called Dexys Midnight Runners. I said, do you, do you know them? He said, yeah, I've got Gino and Show Me. He said, they're great. And it was, oh, okay. And then I realised that they were, you know, they'd had hit singles and a hit album and everything. But... I was never, it's funny, I've never been, you know, okay, that, that's impressive. And it, it's one of the reasons why they're so good is, is you know, if you make an album of, of that standard, then you've worked hard and you, you've got a lot of talent, etc. But my, you know, my, my feelings were how I felt when I was with them playing. It was like, it was, it was in the present. And, and to me, they were just these, this fantastic band who were full of, energy full of you know played great music um and kevin of course who was this curious you know enigma this, this leader <laughs> who was you know very special you could tell even though I, I i didn't know much about him i could just tell he he had something extraordinary and i'm and i know and we all know that as i say in my book that extraordinary people don't come along very often in your lives you know no. with that amount of talent it was a bit like when i'd met Simon Rattle for one day in a workshop at college and the energy and the, the charisma and just their sheer talent is kind of gushes from them and, and you you never forget those sort of things and then so to be have an opportunity to play in a band with somebody who had this extraordinary talent and led a band so that was so disciplined and focused and musical was um, beyond my wildest dreams really you know to want yes. to violinist, you know. <laughs> I know, and, and and there was so many, I mean, I must admit, one of my favourite songs on the album is Plan B, which I still think is absolutely yeah. genius. And, you know, yeah. and it's because I haven't had overkill on the radio. It hasn't been a single which got banged into yeah. your head. That is still yeah. one that, you know, I can listen to with great enthusiasm and freshness, almost. Oh. 
it's, it's, it's 40 yeah. years old but you know what I mean you know those songs that sometimes you just say I have heard this quite too many times to to keep the novelty it's nice if you walk in you hear a song but course, you wouldn't but plan b I just think is an amazing yeah. and but you worked at that stage with two amazing producers didn't you hit machines Clive Langer and and um Alan Wynn Stanley well what was your experience suddenly being in that studio uh in that environment with such an, a lot of intensity um, well, uh, um, Dexys were very well rehearsed, and so we we were so rehearsed that everything everybody on the um, who played on the album recorded it very quickly, um, and all the arrangements had been done. I mean, Kevin and Jim and everybody they, they'd arranged all the music. They were, Clive Langer and Win Sunny were great, but my experience was that they didn't add a huge amount to what had been written. Right. I mean, I, I wasn't there all the time because um, I was still at college when, when I recorded to Raya and um, myself and Steve, the fid other fiddle player in the Ember Express, um, you know, we were actually having to bunk off college to, to record this album. You know, we're meant to be playing for an opera, you know, and it was all, all a bit, you know, hairy. But um, anyway, we, because we were so well rehearsed, we, we, we did everything in first, second takes. You know, so, so we didn't spend very long, and I think it was the same with everyone. And of course, we only came in for the times that we were needed. Um, so I, I don't really know how they were overall because I, you know I, I, I wasn't there all the time. Um, but I was, you know, I was in awe of them. I could tell they were good. You know, they were, um, you know, and I, I was very excited to be there. You know. So, um, why well, I yeah. would imagine it, it, it's amazing because, yeah. because I've, you know, haven't done the, you know, so many of these interviews. You know, most bands have that kind of five year narrative, you know, the 12 month honeymoon period. And with a lot of indie bands in the 80s, they'd get a John Peel play, a John Peel session, you know, the first single, everything going well, the van going around all the little clubs and indie venues around the country. And the UK being so small, every, every place has an indie venue. And that first album, great honeymoon. Second album can be tricky. Third album, really tricky. So, I mean, you're, you know, you were sort of there for their third album, but that's your second one. What was that kind of process like between those, your, you know, the two albums that come, you know, to, that leads to Don't Stand Me Down? Um, well, after we done, we spent sort of a year um, touring and, and all the promotion and things with Touraye, um, there came a point where um, it all stopped. Um, and, um, you know, Ke Kevin was, was then thinking about the third album. And at this point, the, the sort of nucleus of the band had sort of, after a few months, become Kevin, myself and Billy Adams, the guitarist. And... Um, Seb, the drummer, he he was with us, but he he sort of left after a few months, um, and it was at that point that we, um, gosh, well, we'd we we worked very intensely on the writing of this album because it it was a very different approach. I mean, you know, you're talking about earlier about the the seventies artists. We, we were sort of looking at it like bands approached albums then as a complete album not really looking at it as as a, lots of you know short songs or yes that sort of thing and a complete change from from the fixed lineup that Dexys has had it was whatever instrument we feel is right for for the song we, we will pull in so you know whether it was pedal steel or or mandolin or whatever you know um you know just a few bars of cello or something so, so it wasn't like the band was a fixed um a fixed thing 
Um, so that was very um, uh, inspiring, actually, to have to have this huge freedom. And, you know, okay, you know, this is what she's like. The the the, the, the big track was was twelve yes. minutes long, with, with and there was a lot of conversation throughout the album as well, which was it had always been there in Dex's before, especially with the live um, performances. Kevin had always done a lot of spoken yeah. word and stuff, yes. but this was. You know, to have just a conversation with nothing going on in the background to start that track was, um, well, you know, it, it didn't go down too well with a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> but but now people people get it, you know. They yes, might not like they've, it, but they've, they get they've it, worked you know? on it. Yeah, I know. That's a, yeah. It's me. It is kind of got that seventies feel, isn't it? Of kind of just experimenting with, you know, the waltz is a kind of an eight minute track. That is all one of those one of those things is six minutes, and then there's knowledge of yes. beauty seven. So it's it is you've really pushed out the the sort of the. Uh, limitations of the three the perfect three or four minute pop song here haven't you so <laughs> i think the the only song that was sort of like that was listen to this um, which was probably the most accessible you know single if you like um from the album but but it but we never thought oh it's going to be we're going to write something deliberately and write it all like it just just how it ended up you know so it was an, it was fantastic freedom to have I'm not sure people can do, well maybe people can do that now but but I mean I think because we it was costing us an awful lot of money I think there was just more money then um and I think particularly on on the back of off the back of a very successful album as well the record company were quite lenient the 80s there was a lot of money around there was um, a lot and then so we were able to to complete what we wanted you know um which we wouldn't have been able to do now you know yes it cost a lot of money, <laughs> as Kevin knows. Because at 87, you know, the band, you know, to quote Jim Morrison, calls it, you know, the end, really, isn't it, at this stage? Yeah. Did it yeah. feel, and did you feel like it was kind of, did you have that gut instinct that it was kind of coming to an end at this stage as well? Yes, definitely. After we'd finished um, writing um, for, for that BBC sitcom Brushstrokes, which, which again was a very, you know, off sort of completely unexpected thing for us and I think for a lot of Dexys fans to think that we'd, we'd have done that and it, it was actually a very um inspiring sort of uh, it was it was it was a sort of transition really out of out of um the difficulties we'd had with Don't Stand Me Down it was it was it was just a very nice it's almost like I always think of it as a very sunny experience actually because the BBC cast and everybody who was involved in that were lovely it was something very different for us to write a theme tune, and we also released the song as a uh, because of you as a single, which I think went to number thirteen. I think um, it, it it was a sort of nice end to Dexys, and it was actually towards the end of that that I could see that um, things naturally were just it was just closing really, um, and I, you know, said to Kevin, well, I think you know. I'm going to move on and um, I want to write an instrumental album. Um, not that I had any great thoughts of becoming a, a sort of um, uh, a real solo career. I mean, I had to think of it a bit like that, um, but I sort of knew I was, you know, I'm a band member, you know, that's where my strengths lie, but it was a challenge I wanted to do. And so, and so, yeah, I, I, I'd left the band and then Kevin sort of said to Billy, well, I think I'm going to go solo now. And Billy was quite relieved because he'd 
he told me that he he didn't have the nerve, you know, to sort of leave the band. So it was, he kind of needed to be told in a way, you know, that it was finished. And um, and it was all very amicable. And um, it just sort of closed down. I helped Kevin with the demos for his his solo album, and that was a nice sort of um, gentle way out of, of working with Kevin and, and the band again. And, oh, that's uh, a nice ending in a way because I know that you. That's nice. Yeah. You know, I, I sort of saw one minute you were reading the book, and it was like you were getting married. The next minute, the wedding, the wedding's off, and the relationship's <laughs> over. And it's like, God, this is a bit Fleetwood Mac at the moment. So. Um, <laughs> Well, it was. It was a very intense time because obviously we were working so hard on on Don't Stand Me Down, and and um, you know it, it took a long the album took a long time, and and um, you know it was it was a a strange time really all all this going on, but we you know we, we still remain friends throughout it all. You know we we somehow managed to sort of. <laughs> um, see each other every day and 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 put the music first really and I, and I think Kevin and myself are, we have quite a few similarities in some respects in that we can focus on what needs to be focused on and put other things to the side you know and, and be very, very professional and but wow. we were still we were still friends I mean I, I, I mean as upset as I was I could see Kevin was just being totally honest and what and what can you do if somebody says well you know, I need to leave the relationship, you know, it's finished. But it wasn't like he was horrible or he'd been seeing somebody else or anything like that. It was just, I. it, it was sort of up to me, really, I felt, to sort of come to terms with, um, you know, I wasn't going to leave the band and I had to make it work. But it couldn't have been hard, it couldn't have been easy for him either, you know, because... No. Um, but you your know, next but... your next chapter is amazing because you then work with Tanita Tickerum, who yeah, we, we yeah. all remember. And she, you know, comes onto the scene. I remember in the 80s we had several, there was Michelle Schock, Tracy Chapman, Suzanne yeah. Vega. So there was some really amazing new singer-songwriters coming on. Yes. And there was Everything But The Girl. And there was a lot of indie bands that had also appeared, which, you know, had people like the Sundays and... Um, there was the primitives and the darling buds who, you know, but but Tanita, you know, had the acoustic guitar and these very beautiful songs. So did that feel because that was quite a, you know, you didn't have to go into the wilderness for long. Did that feel like a relief to suddenly go, oh, this is quite a nice, this is a nice conversation and a nice change of scenery? Very much so. I mean, you know, I I, I was had been working on my solo album for for a while. Um, and then out of the blue, her manager rang up. Her, her manager had been Dex's agent. So when a violinist was suggested, he'd put my name forward, you know. And um, and initially I was sort of, well, I'm, you know, because the thing with Dex's is you didn't do session work when you worked with them. You know, it was um, just one of the things, really, that you would, with Dex's and that was it you know and that was fine by me so I hadn't quite got my head into this thing I can work with anybody now you know, yes. once I've left. so actually when I thought about it I thought yeah that, that sounds great and when I did the session I, I so enjoyed it you know I loved um, being back in the studio you know it, it was you know a great song um, Tanita was very quiet so I didn't you know obviously didn't really know much about herself but I could sense there was a very big talent going on here you know and, yes. and then after that, of course, you know, it was a hit quite quickly. And then her, her manager put this band together, including myself. And um, I, I loved it because I didn't have, I had the responsibility to play well every night and do my best, obviously, and all the rest of it. But 
um, where, but I didn't have that thing as it had been with Dexys where you're in the photos and you're doing the interviews and I, I'd been musical director as well and, and yes. arranger and all sorts. So I, it was very much a session musician and I really enjoyed it. But I was being also valued for my musicianship and, and as the new songs were written, Tanita would let me write my parts and um, and I, I arranged some parts with some other musicians as well, you know, Mark Isham included um for her third album and uh, you know i really really enjoyed it and um i still really enjoy playing with tanita now i'm still working with her in a way since i've got back to playing again i'm i've you know um yeah because you I work on freshness because you work on three albums but at that stage and this was something that sort of was very exciting when i saw in the book because you you got a chapter called new age which Let's face it. In the nine, well, the eighties and the nineties, we all became yes. slightly new agey. So um, <laughs> I'm not sure if <laughs> well, you did. Some did. <laughs> some did. But you recorded with a label called, called New World Music, which is kind of in the kind of East Anglian countryside around the Waveney Valley, and, and either they're either based in Hellsworth or Bun- Suff- Beckles, uh, Suffolk, Suffolk yeah, in that Suffolk. area. Yes. So, yeah. so what this was a um, yes. Was this an interesting detour for you? Sort of had it was it the case that you made the album and then someone said, "Oh, actually, we love Enya at the moment, and this there's a good market for sort of this <laughs> very calm music." And um, yes, so how did this this solo a album? Total appear? coincidence, really, because like like I said, when I left Texas, I thought I'd like to write an instrumental album where the violin is like the voice. So it, I want the songs to be quite direct, um, you know, not very long, um, you know, kind of written with the verse, chorus, middle eight kind of format. Um, I hadn't heard of New Age music, and it was only when I was looking for some representation and Woody Woodmansey, who had played or was programming some drums for me, actually, on a drum machine, um, he said, oh, um, you want to contact, maybe contact Gray Levitt, who's managing Nicky Hopkins. Now, Nicky Hopkins is the legendary pianist who's yes. played on, or did, had played on virtually everybody's records, Stones, Jealous Guy, Kings, you know, you name it sort of thing. And I'd always been a fan of Nicky's because um, those are the records I grew up with, you know, She's a Rainbow and all that, all that sort of thing. Um, and so I met up with Gray and he said, well, two things. He said, one, I'm managing Nicky. He's writing an instrumental album, um, but have you heard New Age album, New Age music? And I said no, I haven't. And then he introduced me to song um, to albums on the Wyndham Hill label, and, right. and I realised it was a big thing that was coming over. So it was a kind of coincidence what I was doing, and I didn't, I didn't think what I was doing was New Age actually. So I was approaching labels to to see if they I could get a deal. I'd made these demos and Nikki had also Nikki and me had become friends and Nikki had played on my album, you know, which was had blown me away, obviously, you know, to have such a talent as Nikki play. Um but every label I went to, it was they, they weren't interested. You know, they said, oh we don't know how to market this. It's not folk, it's not classical, it's not this. It's, they said it's not even new age, you know, so it was I wasn't fitting in anywhere. Right. And it Anyway, long story short is that I somehow discovered the New World label and I thought, well, they, they seem very much like a New Age label, but, you know, I'll, I'll send my I'll send, send a few songs to them and see what they think. And um, they got straight back and they loved it. And they said, well, you know, you don't need to re-record. We love everything as it is and um, we're happy for it, for it to go out like this, you know. So I... I, I I was, you know, I was over the moon really because um, 
I'd had so many great musicians play on the album as well, and they'd done it for next to nothing, just for the love and, and you know, as much as I could afford to pay them, which wasn't very much at the time. You know, yes. people like um, B.J. Cole, Robin Williamson. I know, you know B- that um, was amazing. Skylar Kanga, the, the harpist, um, like I say, Woody was programming and playing percussion, Nicky, um, Matt Backer, who, who now, you know, well, not now, but he, he was absolutely brilliant then guitarist and has just played with everyone since and all, all sorts you know Nigel or Scott played bass he'd played on because of you with Dexies and so I you know everything was well played and I, I I was you know absolutely chuffed so so in the end I thought well okay this is I want the album to yeah, I was quite pragmatic about it really I thought well either it doesn't go out or it goes out on a sort of new age label um, and interestingly a lot of the labels I approached that then had had since folded quite quickly, but New World have kept going and going and going. And my album, and I made another one called A Night in Ireland, which was um, you know Irish Irish yes. music. Um, that has consistently sold and still is selling because they've become the the leading um, sort of um, relaxation and meditation. That's label. right. Most so, people probably have been massaged to your music. <laughs> I like to think so. <laughs> I think that's a classic that's a, it's really good but there's some um, yeah this love you know it's brilliant and to be honest it's like well this is and also I guess working with another genius-ish character I mean oh. I, did, I did interview yeah Robin I was thinking of yeah. Robin Williamson yeah yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, well quite, there's lots there yeah <laughs> Robin yeah must have been an insight in also a, quite an extreme character as well who done you know um, you know he was I described him in the book was it I think in the book as, as being a bit like a because he only came in for a day, and and he what and he played penny whistle. Um, gosh, what else did he play? Um, I think he played guitar. Some um, I think he played some accordion. He seemed to play a bit of percussion. He could seem to do anything actually. And and but he appeared, and I I, I sort of quote myself like in a puff of smoke. He was a bit like a wizard, and he just suddenly was there, and he was this. You could feel again this amazing character stepping into your world and just yes. doing everything so easily just just like you know well Robin would you mind you know soloing over this and, and it was like and he just did it you know and it was wow well thank you and would you mind doing this and he'd just do it you know and and it was full of character and, and the moment you know and it, and it was yeah it was a real privilege and he and he was um suggested to me by Gray Levitt, who, who, like I say, was representing him at the time. He knew Robin. And, right. and I think Robin did it for nothing. You know, he just came in and said, I'd be pleased to do it. And he was, you know, it, I mean, it's a privilege, isn't it? You know, when, when you meet people like this and then they play, play, you know, you play with them. They, their music is there, you know, standing there on my records. And um, yeah. Well, it's, a, it's amazing. I mean, to think that, you know, you, I know you mentioned David Bowie quite a bit in the book, but also to have Woody Woodmansey as well, sort of. Yeah. You know, as well as Nicky Hopkins. But I just think that's just lovely moments that you think, I would have never thought about this in the 70s. No one, you know, I would have. Well, I mean, that's it. Because I saw, so David Bowie, I saw Woody play with, you know, as a spider. You know, I was right at the front, just as Starman came out at the Lacana in Bristol. You know, I was there watching him play in absolute awe and just, you know, I, I was an absolute you know, well, obsessive about David Bowie and his music then and, well, and the Spiders. And, and it's and, funny, was was that the gig that you, your friend had a diary entry and you both said, who's Gareth? And it's, oh, it's Gareth Seeger. He's, he was in Rip 
Rick, Rick and Panic. Yeah. yeah. No, that was that was because I would go to any any of David Barry's concerts I could. That was at the Colston Hall um, the day before my English literature exam, and I'd gone. I bought tickets for two performances because you know back then groups often did you know a sort of late afternoon. Yes, that's Saturday. right. And the evening one, and I'd got tickets for both, you know. And and yeah, that's um, sitting next to Gareth, who was younger than me. Who was a, a fr- I had a friend called Sh- um, Sean Sager, and um, oh yes, it was her brother who I didn't mm. know, and I just thought younger, you know, Sean's her, her younger brother, you know, kind of like as girls were then, you know, we only ever wanted to had eyes for older older boys, really. <laughs> yeah, ones. no, we, we were still playing with action men when you were exactly. at your age. You know, we were pathetically <laughs> immature. Exactly. You made the right choice. <laughs> but Gareth, bless him, then on Twitter, you know, a few years ago, put up his ticket and said, you know, I was at this concert for David Barrett at the Costantal and I happened to be sitting next to Helen, who later played with Dexys. And it was just one of those moments when I read this tweet and I thought, well, who'd have, who, well, we, you know, who'd have thought two of us teenagers sitting there watching David Bowie? And yes. later on, we were both, that's what we were heading to, to the same world as David Bowie, you know, you know what I mean? Right. We were going to be in that pop world. Because also, also in the book, and which is kind of a bit of a Norwich connection, because John Playford came from Norwich and he collected the Playford dance, didn't he? And, and later, a bit later on, apart from you, you become kind of interested in the Playford ball kind of ancient music or ancient of the, the yes. 1700s, which is quite a nice little touch. So I was all very excited because not only is that a little bit of a Norwich connection, though he was born there, you also, a little bit later, this is going to be a bit muddly, isn't it? You meet Tim Burgess. Yeah. from the charlatans outside Marks and Spencers in Norwich. So I was very excited by all this Norwich connection. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so I thought, wow, well, who would have, Nor- who would have known? Yeah. So, yeah, the Playford Ball. So when did mm. this come into your consciousness? Because that's always kind of interesting to sort of hear. Because, you know, again, quite a lot of musicians who've done that kind of the single, the album, the world tour, you know, some stardom, go on to do some quite curious and interesting things. So the Playford Ball is a, is a nice little detour, isn't it? Was this just another musical exploration for you? Um, it, it, well, yes, but it also came about by accident, but a, a very happy accident in, in that I'd stopped playing the violin for 23 years to, to bring up my boys. And, and then I lost confidence in myself um, as a person and, and a violinist. But at some point, well, it, the point was when both my sons went to the Guildhall School of Music and Drama and were becoming professional musicians and um well one is a professional musician the other um was working in the technical theater side and going to see their shows and concerts and gigs and whatever uh, it got the better of me because i i was just being honest with myself thinking hang on a minute i'm really missing this this is what you know i am a musician i'm i'm really missing this so i i need to I need to pick up the violin again. And it was a big thing because, um, as you can imagine, you know, after 20 years, it's, it's you know, I've completely lost touch with, with the pop music industry. And physically, you know, I had to, just had to get everything back. So I started to practice again and I, I was determined to find my way back into, into the pop music world somehow. But I didn't know how really. And it, and it was... 
one of the one of the things I thought was when I was practicing, I, I think yeah, I've got to play with other people. I can't just practice in my room and then say to somebody, you know, contact Kevin and say, well, I'm playing again. If you need a fiddle player or Tanita or whatever. Yes. Um, and so I, I I discovered I was I'd moved back to Greenwich and I discovered that there was a English folk music club that met every Tuesday down the road. And I thought, well, I don't know anything about English folk music. I know a bit about Irish. Um, like everybody does, but English folk had no idea um, and went along. And, and this is where I discovered the Playford music. Oh, yes. And I was just, it was a bit like discovering the three-minute single, really, as a classical musician, because they're short, sharp tunes, very melodic, written for dancing, so very rhythmic. Um, and it was just a group of musicians of all abilities, all ages, um, playing music by ear, um, just together. And anyway, I became charmed by this music and and dived into it. And and there was one guy there who is an authority on on this music and and has compiled lots of books, a guy called John Offord. And he was very helpful in in encouraging me and and teaching me about the music. And and it took me ages to realise that the music had to be played with dance in mind and of course you know as you say it, it was ballroom music for for the um, 1700s and um eventually i i um i i joined a group called boldwood who who were playing for dances as well so that was great to see see the dancing happen as yes we well um, interesting a great discovery yeah. yeah, well, interesting enough, I, I I I never played music, so that's a miss. But I do I did a bit of you know I went through a bit of a dip period of dancing and became a bit obsessed with the waltz and a bit of tap dance. And then I kind of got into the doing these kind of dances because there was a really? group in Norwich. Yes, so oh, wow. I really they had a Norwich historic and they meet you know like every week. I mean, you know, and they were very sweet and they were lovely because they were a completely different age group to me. And they were very, yeah, and they were, they were very enthusiastic. And they knew everything about every every way you sort of moved and put your feet and you curtsied. Yeah. I even learned how to bow or even curtsy. You know, I was kind of, uh, yeah, so, so in this period, you'd curtsy like this. And I was thinking, to be honest, I'm not going to curtsy, am I? But I'll go with it. <laughs> it was kind of interesting. Yeah. And I absolutely loved the music because it was this kind yeah. of, and, and I was just looking, there was things like, and I, this was one of my favourite, there was Jenny Pluck's Pears, there was things yes. like, yeah. um, there, there was a lovely one called Peas, Peas, oh, Peas, um, Uh, there was Parson upon Dorothy and people they all had these amazing names and narratives and stories so you know people would tell you the story they teach you the dance and then you just walk around interacting with people bowing and curtsying it was kind of a kind of courtly it's how you used to you know it was their their version of how you slightly you know started to um, fall in love with someone I guess but it was just lovely and when I read that I was so pleased that was such a nice little touch that's amazing that that you've sort of experienced that because it is it's another language as well so when the caller is telling you as you probably know telling you what to do so you know the group is up on the on the stage or to the side waiting to play to accompany the dancing but the caller is just telling the, the dancers what to do and it was it's like a it's a dance language I did yeah really odd words were coming out it's like wow what's, what's that but everybody knew what he meant and then you'd watch these patterns and formations very graceful but also what was interesting for me was I suddenly clicked in is that when you saw maybe a slight jump or a skip from the dancer you realize that you had to time your playing 
you know, that was the, the, the breath in the music. Yeah. And so it took me ages to, until I started working with the dancers. I didn't realize that that actually was what, that the two work together. Basically. Yeah, because there were some times, and you must have had this playing, where the music would slow down and everybody would be doing something gentle. And it was almost like, a, you know, the group, sometimes four, sometimes six, sometimes eight dancers would all start moving differently and you'd yes. start skipping around again. And obviously yeah. you as a musician would be kind of responding to that or leading the dance. Um, I suppose yeah. it was a co-relationship. Co and it was just really nice. But, you know, I used to love that because there, there was a folk band called Blows a Bell and they used to have a hurdy-gurdy player. Oh, and yeah, and you get this yeah, kind yeah. of noise yeah. and this kind yes. of drone and sometimes yeah, with the right. fiddle yeah. and all the other instruments and a few kind of drums percussion yeah. you know, I just found it really even though it was folk and it was acoustic it was so powerful and it was so rhythmic I just I thought god you can't help but love this music and it was fascinating thinking oh this is from the 1700s I often wondered you know how music you know how far back you can go to the early bit of music before you think, well, no one's recorded or no one knows what they played in the 1500s or I don't know, some period. They must be like, well, we have no idea, but they must have done something, but we've got no recording of it. So um, records. So John Playford from Norwich. There you go. Very interesting. Exactly. <laughs> and, and what is fascinating, David, and I think, and it, and it still bothers me, is that I went through four years of music college. This music was never mentioned. And this music was running along the same time as Baroque music and was more popular probably than Baroque music because it was the it was like pop music for them. Yes. And I could not believe I'd gone through four years of music college. This music hadn't been talked about or discussed. And I'd a lifetime, you know, I'd only discovered it, you know, when I was hitting 60 or something. I thought, well, how is that possible? And and it's still not very well known in this country. English no. music. It, people can probably sing you a Scottish tune and an Irish tune, but you know, apart from green sleeves or something, people don't know about it. And no, um, they, I know. they've it's... got the wrong idea. They've they they have got a sort of um they don't realise its importance um and, and its cultural value and and its uh, beauty. Um that, that unfortunately people sort of laugh and you know they, they think, oh Morris dancing, well that's a different thing. No, you know, and yeah. Morris dancing has its place, you know, as well, but it's it's a different thing. It's totally yeah, so. no. I mean, it, it, I completely echo what you say. I just think it would. It, I mean, it probably won't ever get completely lost, but it just doesn't get the recognition. And I just think it's yeah. it's terrible because it's such an important chapter. And if you do it, it's just the best fun. It's just so lovely. It's a lovely and, atmosphere, yeah. and everyone's trying their hardest. And um, and with a bit of practice, you can make the most beautiful shapes with a group of strangers. That is yeah. just gorgeous with lots exactly. of bowing and, and a lot of good, a lot of bowing and curtsying and a lot of great musicians just holding well. hands in a rather cute yeah, yeah. way it's just gorgeous <laughs> I do love that so then oh god I know I could talk for ages on that bit but yeah so how did the Tim Burgess because suddenly I know there's a kind of an album you also bring with Dexy's fifth album but just um yes with Tim and Norwich how how come you meet at outside Marks and Spencer's in well Norwich? actually we didn't we didn't meet outside Marks and Spencer's we had a fun conversation where he was standing outside Mark Suspenses. Oh, right. So so what had happened, what had happened was Dexys had done a couple of listening parties with Tim on his Twitter listening parties um, for, uh, which I'd been involved in, well, they'd done three actually, but I was involved in Two Ray A and Don't Stand Me Down. And um, through these listening parties on Twitter, we were, you know, tweeting and there was some conversations, interaction going on. And... Um, 
Tim, after after the one of the parties, Tim messaged me privately and he, he said, um, uh, I'm making, um, a, 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 doing a, a recording a director vinyl, um, a couple of songs for Soho Radio. Um, and would you, you know, would you be interested in playing the violin with us? Tim's other um, fiddle player uh, at the time, Peter, had just left the band as well. So it was kind of a kind of a one of those lucky moments for me, I suppose. Yes. And they were looking for the fiddle player. And you know, I was, you know, just as I was pinching myself, really. You know, just thinking, wow, you know, this is this is amazing. I'd love to, you know. So. Um, I, I rehearsed with the band and we recorded that, which which was which was great and and, and again a, a completely new experience. I've never recorded anything where you literally record and it goes direct. You no second chance. It just goes. It's cut literally to the, to the vinyl record, and that was given out for um, I think a charity um, um, kind of thing, which was nice. And then from there, Tim asked me to to play on some more things and do tours and and um, but but. Um, that yeah, so basically that that's how that happened. And Tim at the time was living in 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 um, Norwich, sorry, right. in Norfolk, in Norfolk, Norfolk, and he was in Norwich doing doing some shopping or something, and just happened to be talking to me at some. But it was when he said, "Well, look, I'm standing outside Marks and Spencer's because I was quite nervous about this phone call," and I thought, "Oh, he just immediately that was just like." normality you know maybe it was marks spencer's kind of, <laughs> of normality of marks and spencer what do they say um, when when you're in your teens it's marks and engels and when you're in your 40s it's marks and spencer's <laughs> i like that <laughs> so it's uh, we all come we all covered with good underwear so um yeah so that's that sounds amazing because that does that's quite an amazing moment that you had having put the violin away for that amount of time mm-hmm. it must have felt like such a, an emo because you know, one knows that that thing that you're not dealing with is still going to be there. You have to somehow yes, you're right. move with it, don't you? You have to deal with it one day. And it's quite hard. It's a tough number to to bring out because that's that in so many ways was your identity, which is a another layer of complexity yeah. for the to, to the yes. mind to deal yes. with. So, um, you're absolutely right there. Yeah, there was lot, lots of layers going on there. And um, I suppose I could have hid, hidden it forever. But then... I, th- I think, in some ways, as as I describe in the book, it was it became it got to the point where it was almost beyond my control, and where I I can remember the day actually um, can't remember the date, but I can remember the day where I just found myself going upstairs. I knew where my violin was. It was at the we had a, a cupboard which was very long, and my violin was right at the back of that cupboard. That says a lot as well, doesn't it? It was never yes. at the front, you know. <laughs> and I just almost ran up the stairs sort of dived in got you know got the violin out and it was like you know a bit like sort of a missing limb or or something that that I was just bit basically being reunited with a part of me I suppose um yes so it it wasn't emotional I wasn't like crying or anything but it was just like a a really lovely but also having that acceptance in myself that I knew I was going to be rubbish when I picked it up and played because you know, if you haven't played something or done something for a long time, you know, you've lost that skill. But but I knew how it all should work and how it should sound. And I and I suppose in my head I knew I was ready to to start, you know, quite a long process of of getting my muscles back in shape and, and my mind in gear and all the rest of it. And so I was kind of ready for it. So I was quite calm with it all. And Excellent. I just then had a very 
focused and and you know a plan as to right okay so you've just got to practice every day um for as long as it takes and then take it from there and don't I'm like, I'm like didn't put too much pressure on myself either because you know if I'd have done that I think I would have packed it in again after two weeks you know because but I think I also know how you know having having learned musical instruments you know how long it takes you know it's not a quick thing it's like with anything if you want to get skilled at it you it's going to say ages you know you don't just suddenly become good at something you know um so I was ready for that for that process and um and then so you know I had just had to find ways of of getting other ways besides practice. I, I busked as well. I did quite a lot of busking. Yes, you mentioned this in the book and there's some lovely pictures as well. So that's, yeah. That's... And, and, and that that was, again, I would never have, well, I had done a little bit in my student years, actually, to earn some money. But to do it as consistently as I did at my age, you know, it's a different thing, I think, when you're, you know, I would have been about 58, 59 or something doing that then. Um by myself mainly I did play with some other music but mainly it was by myself and it was all part of the plan really and but having done that you see it was like the people I met just the people I had conversations with and often about because I was playing this English folk music you see so and and that so that came in that helped me with the busking because otherwise what do you play I didn't want to play classical music and I didn't want to do a sort of karaoke thing you know because <laughs> yes. I was very you know just wanted to acoustic violin and 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 that was that and I, I it's such an amazing couple of years of my life that when I did that because um I'd have never met the people that I met um and some have become great friends since you know so you know those things that you know I really value that you know, uh, and um, I probably won't do it again, but but it was a very important and, and lovely sort of time, you know. Yeah, it's a nice chapter. Hugely important to get into that, you know. Yeah. But it, it took a lot of it took a lot of guts, really. Although I didn't really think of that at the time, I don't think I had, could allow myself to think that. But you know, a sort of to stand there is, but you're very sort of vulnerable you're quite sort of naked really you just get your instrument out and sometimes people would be ready to play you know to watch me play before I'd even warmed up and you think gosh you know I just need to (laughs) play a few tunes just to get myself you know often it would be cold um sometimes some you know cut the kids come on trying to steal the money or but but you know 90 90 percent it was just like you know such a great experience happy people Um, that's that's really beautiful I mean did did sort of also because I think was it your mother who said about suggesting writing the book as well she did yeah which I she she did and it it was when I just started to to play I think I just got back with um playing I was playing with Tanita and done a little bit of work with Dexes and and she was so pleased I was playing again because you know I think she probably knew that I'd what had happened but she never actually sort of we never had the conversation about it but I suppose she always knew I was a musician and that it was a part of me that I should now be doing you know and and so she was just delighted when I was playing again and and she loved Tanisha as well she loved Kevin and you know so the whole thing was great and then she said well you know it's on you know your story is unusual in in I think she saw, you know, she she got it that being a woman instrumentalist in, in a band mm. is quite unusual. You know, there aren't 
there weren't that many back in the day, you know, in the early days when I was playing with Dexter's and, 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 you know, we can name some, but there's not many. And, and no, absolutely. Yeah. Thank goodness there's more now. More more women are in, in, in music now. So that, so that so that's great, obviously. But at the time, you know, so she recognised that it was quite I'd had quite an unusual sort of life, I suppose, or you know, musical story. And and initially I kind of dismissed it as um I suppose I was a bit embarrassed, you know, to think that, you know, I should consider writing a book. But the more I thought about it, I thought actually you know, I, th- I think it'd be good, you know, because it it probably is. It, it you know, it could be interesting for, for people to read from, from my from my point of view. I'm not, I'm not the front person, you know, that, and I've worked with lots of different people, and um, yeah, you know, it, it it could be interesting for women musicians. Maybe I know my story is different, but but it's not that different. It's still that you know, it it's still. Hard, I think, for women in in bands these days. Well, it's, and, it's uh, interesting because I did an interview with Rose, who was in the Incredible String Band. You know, and her story of being with those guys. Oh, so she's yeah. got a book, and that was just fascinating. Her take and how that developed, and playing at Woodstock and stuff. And then Mickey, who was the other musician in in that band, Lush, she brought a book out this year. Of course. So yes. I think people, I think people, the stories are so interesting, and and it's also. Yeah, you know, unless one does, it's not going to be told. So in a way, it's great that you and everybody else has been writing books. And it's, you know, I think especially good that so more women have just said, hey, I've I've also got my story. It's not just about the blokes, you know, and it's it's a different take, isn't it, as well? It's It's a completely different, yeah, the different experience had, you know, and also it's fascinating, you know, I I love listening, you know, the the, the part of the childhood, the family, the, you know, developing stuff, and then before you know it, you're playing in these kind of arenas like Woodstock, (laughs) or you're playing in front of all these fans, or you're on top of the pops at number one and thinking... My God, how did that happen? You know, and is, is this yeah. normal? is this normal? I have no reference. Two years ago, I was not playing in front of twenty people in a little village hall. So, you know, exactly. it's kind of and then processing. How do you then come out of that and then go to the next level and and do the next part of your life? So, it's a fantastic. I think it's an amazing read, and I, I you know, I think well, thank it, you. It was just really beautiful to um to see it. I mean, if you could have just said something to your like sixteen year old self starting out, is there anything that you would have just kind of whispered in their ear as they were about to launch from their O levels to their A levels? Um, well, I think um, something that's always worked for me is trust your instincts. Really, listen to your heart. You know, yeah. you're usually right, and 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 go with your dream. You know, and it's something that I, you know, it's not always easy, but, you know, try and, try and get your dream working because, you know, if you don't, even if you don't, you know, it doesn't happen how you want it, at least, you know, at least if, if you've tried it, you know, you're never going to think, oh, I wish I had, you know, you, you don't want any regrets, you know. Um, yes. And that's something I thought when I came back to music. I thought, well, if it doesn't work out, if nobody wants me to play with them, I've tried, like I did in the beginning. I've tried to 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 get it working, and and then that's fine. You know, I can li- I can live with that. You know, that that's fine. But but you know, don't you what you what you and and also the other thing, and it's it's the way um, my ex husband and me we we always encouraged our boys you know if you can you know you, you want to try and find something that you want to get out of bed in the morning to do 
you know, yes. it. it doesn't matter what it is, but if you want to do it, then that's, you know, that's the main thing, really. If you can do that, then that's great, isn't it? And do you feel, I mean, once you've done the book, did that feel like a really a nice process that you then a bit like getting the violin out, a bit like still having, you know, a, you know, conversations with people like Tanita or, De, you know, um, Dexie's, I mean, <laughs> Kevin, that's God. <laughs> Is it quite <laughs> nice to have to sort of think, actually, it's quite nice we've got to this stage in our lives and it, and we're still walking and talking through all the ups and downs and all the, you know, you mentioned, you know, there was a few moments with people with drugs, drug habits, which weren't great, but, you you know, surviving it and then feeling like, oh, that's been, that's kind of nice. There's a kind of a, a the shadow, some of the shadows have been lifted, so to speak. Yeah, I find, I find writing it very positive, you know, and I, I and it, it, it enabled me to get to know myself better. So I had to really, really think a lot, very hard, not, not just about the past, but about myself. Um, I've also reconnected with so many people in the book who I who I didn't think I would reconnect with. For example, um, the third fiddler with 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 Dex's Simon. Um, I'd lost contact with him, and I was trying to find him when I was writing the book just to have a chat with him about things. And he contacted me and and had bought the book, and and it was so lovely just to just have some conversations with him. And even going back to my um, 17, 18 year old self, I met the guitarist who I played with, who I'd totally lost contact, who is now a guitar, a professor of guitar in um, Berklee School of Music in New York, you know. Um, wow, I mean, that's amazing. Just, yeah, amazing reconnections with people. Uh, and, and yeah, just that, you know, real, realization if I needed to remind myself that I've had a, you know, I've had a great life. And, and, and like you say, you know, I'm, a lot of us are still here and that's you know that, that that's amazing and we're still doing what we want to do <laughs> well it's lovely that connection with Tim and and sort of you know kind of dis- new you know, people hit- as well absolutely I think yeah. that's great isn't it I mean creativity does open doors doesn't it it does. It does. Yeah. I, guess, yeah, I guess I guess people are going to be opening this in three days' time, aren't they? On Christmas Day. We'll oh well, I, I can't believe that people. It's it's kind of one thing writing it, but then people actually are, are buying it. You know, is is an amazing thing. You know, it's really, yeah, it's just lovely. Um, I hope they like it. Oh God, it's great. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, look, thank you ever so much for this, Helen. This has been amazing. And if you want, I can always send you the link, and then you can. If you want oh, to use it elsewhere, because it's, it's fine. Yeah, and, um, it'd be lovely to chat with you. And um, yeah, yeah. And that, dear listener, is the end of the, the interview. A massive thank you, as always, to uh, Helen O'Hara. Forgive me the time for that. The book that's come out is titled What's She Like? This is a memoir. This has come out on route publishing but it's available from all good bookshops and also online so do check that out this is the c86 show david so if you want to contact me you can on facebook twitter instagram just do c86 show all these interviews have been archived on spotify itunes podbeam it's true anyway have a great week stay safe